Good morning, everybody, and thank you for tuning in to this United States Study Centre webinar on coronavirus and protest. How has COVID-19 changed the face of American activism? A particularly timely webinar. Before we begin, I would like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which the University of Sydney and the City of Sydney stands, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders, past and present, and I further acknowledge traditional owners of country on which you are on and pay respects. So today's webinar, just to give you a little bit of background to how we set it up, we actually set it up a couple of weeks ago before the current wave of protest, which is one of the biggest waves of protest in recent American history, started rocking the country about a week ago. But there were protests going on before that, which you may remember, but have been forgotten to some extent. There was a wave of protests against the pandemic lockdown measures that were going on at this point. And what we're hoping is that those today can provide some much needed context for what we are seeing unfolding now. My name's Dr. David Smith. I'm a senior lecturer at the United States Study Center. And our guest today is Elliot Brennan, who is a researcher at the United States Study Center. And this event is really built around his very uh, recently re released report, which you can find on the USSC website about coronavirus and protest. I highly encourage you to uh, download it and read it. It has got some fantastic data and analysis in it. It does look a little bit like a time capsule uh, at this point before the most uh, recent wave of protest began, but no less valuable for that. And so I'm going to start by asking Elliot. So obviously everybody, I imagine probably everybody who's uh, tuning into this webinar has been following these protests in the US related to the death of George Floyd really, really closely over the last week and especially over the last uh, 48 hours. But you were really following the protests that took place beforehand very closely, the right-wing protests against lockdown measures. What can those protests and the way that they unfolded, what can they tell us about the current protest moment that is happening now in America? Thanks, David. Uh, yeah, I really wanted to get a sense of how after 2019, which was widely referred to as the year of global protest, how a year of global protest comes into play with a, a year of lockdown. That's certainly the way it was looking in March when I started this research. And originally my question was, how are these progressive protest groups responding to having their main tool of civil resistance, marches and protests, taken away from them. Um, so I was really looking at the effect on progressive groups in the first instance. And in the middle of this research, the events started to get ahead of it. And these conservative protests, responses to state lockdowns started to emerge. So I thought it would be good to compare both, how both sides of the political spectrum were responding to having their freedoms, their liberties curtailed, mm -hmm. and also this enormous uh, challenge of the common good responding to a, a pandemic that was starting to ravage the United States. 
Um, so if we can go to the first slide of the presentation. So here, what, what this is here is GDELT data of protests between January 1st, 2019 and the, I think the 4th of May, 2020. And it uses uh, web scraping to track the number of protests over time and also geographically. So you can see that at, at the start of March there, 2020, protests in the United States just fell off the face of a cliff. And this is about when it started to become apparent that coronavirus was a serious thing. And around the middle of March, right at the bottom of that, that trough there, is where states started to enact lockdowns and stay-at-home orders. So as those orders started to impinge on people's sense of personal liberty, their freedoms, started to take away their jobs and their livelihoods, protests in the United States started to track back, back up. Um, and there's a big blue dashed line there. And this was one of the main findings in the report that I was happy to be able to somewhat quantify is how Donald Trump's infamous liberate tweets played into these protest movements. A lot of media commentary was accusing the president of causing the protests. Um, but by actually drilling into the data, it's quite evident that as is so often the case with Donald Trump, he leaned into a, an existing grievance and amplified it. He didn't create the protest movement, but he gave it air, he gave it life, and he emboldened those that were conducting it. Quite remarkably, the number of protests in the United States peaked at a level, this is the five-day rolling average, peaked at a level above those that we saw in 2019, which were in response to the horrendous conditions that children in immigration camps were were being held in, in the United States. So when those revelations came out, huge protests across the United States, as well as several dozens of uh, high profile protests for gun control after high profile mass shootings, the number of protests in the United States in the anti-lockdown movements was higher than this. It's important to note that the number of protesters was nowhere near close, but the number of individual events, even at the time of the pandemic exceeded this massive protests in 2019. So if we can go to the next slide. This here is a pullout of that spike right there at the end of, uh, of that first graph. And it shows quite clearly how in the two clearest instances where the president weighed into these anti-lockdown protests, they were already back on the rise. But you can see secondary peaks after he weighed in and supported the protesters, emboldened them, in the first instance, calling for protesters to liberate. In the second, saying that they were very good people and should be negotiated with. Now, this, as David mentioned, seems like ancient history at the moment, but there are two quite uh, important through lines that run through both, both these protest movements. The first is the one I've been talking about, the way that President Trump has interacted with these protests leaning into them. But the second is coronavirus. So during all of this, African-Americans were being decimated by the coronavirus, disproportionately losing jobs. One in 2,000 African-Americans has already lost their life. And this is very early in what looks like the trajectory of the pandemic. And disproportionately, African-Americans are frontline workers and just across the board in incarcerated communities, homeless communities, and the recently unemployed communities, African-Americans are overwhelmingly overrepresented. 
And these are the areas where coronavirus is, is hitting quite hard. So at the same time that COVID-19 has riled up conservative protests in the United States, it's also laid bare deeply etched social inequalities in the United States that really, really are becoming apparent. And this is one source, one recent source of the anger we're seeing play out now, but this is a phenomenon that stretch, stretches much further than President Donald Trump and much further than coronavirus. So back to the first point on Donald Trump and how he weighs into this, he uses protest movements and leverages them against his political enemies. If we can go to the next slide, again, this is a, a capsule of just that anti-lockdown movement, but I, with our fantastic uh, data, data analyst, Zoe Mears, we were able to break out how these protests played out by state and by the politics of those states. I won't linger on this too much longer than to say there's a clear pattern of Democratic governors and Republican governors that Donald Trump has clashed with personally. He's pointed the finger at, at these states and we can see that while there are numerous other factors going on, these states have borne the brunt of protest movement uh, between April and May in 2020. And though the data is simply too incredible at the moment to be able to verify at all, we're seeing this play out again in protests that are largely in democratic cities and democratic states. And President Trump has in his tweets been wont to point out weak democratic governors in his words. So politics is never far from the way that President Trump responds to crises. And that was evident in the first instance, the anti-lockdown protests, and it's very clearly evident with what's going on now. I'll leave it there and we can get into more current, more current events. Thanks very much. And yeah, to everyone, I highly recommend uh, checking out that report. I'm going to go to our first pre-submitted question from an attendee, Jim Orchard. So he asks whether media coverage of small and noisy protests um, is, gives added significance to protests more than the number that are participating in it would warrant. And I suppose that we can extend that question as well to looking at the current protests where there's a lot of media attention on fires that get set, uh, on, on looting. Is the media coverage of the spectacle of protests in both instances, is this out of proportion? Is it more than is actually warranted? Yes and no. What's happening in the United States at the moment is historic. Um, I think it, it deserves blanket media coverage because what we're seeing is quite clearly one of the most significant events in recent American history. Um, on the other hand, and this was apparent in the lockdown protests as well, there is a, a circular nature to the way that media can feed back into to protests, both exposing, we've seen countless images night after night of uh, journalists being targeted by police, citizens being targeted by police. Broadcasting this, of course, adds fuel to the fire, but it also cuts against um, really what the intention of militarizing police forces in the 60s was. Um, David, you're just as well quali as qualified to talk about this, but my understanding is that 
by arming police forces such as they were after the civil during the civil rights movement police forces were able to contain protest movements immediately before they spread to a national scale social media and the 24-hour news cycle is really undercutting that and especially in this instance where a police act of brutality on the east coast of the united states can cause protests in the west coast within hours um, so of course the media is a factor here and another thing we have to consider is partisan media in the United States. Um, cable viewership, especially during lockdown, went through the roof. And it created this picture where in polling, viewers of Fox News and viewers of MSNBC have very radically different perceptions of the seriousness of coronavirus, the valiance of the anti-lockdown protesters, and we're even starting to see polling, though really quite early and quite, quite confusing, to be honest, about how people are viewing protests versus riots. But all the way the cable media is set up in the United States does nothing to help the entrenchment of the political divide that we've seen play out over these two protest movements. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, by the way, I'll just mention to everyone watching at this point, um, so thank you to those who pre-submitted questions and we will get to those throughout the webinar. If you have another question uh, for us, please put it in the uh, Q&A box and we'll do our best to get to those. We certainly welcome any questions at this point. Yeah, I mean, on that point about how things are perceived, in my Twitter feed this morning, two different polls came up from various uh, poll aggregation feeds, one of which was asking people about whether they thought the uh, police action that led to the original protests in Minneapolis was unjust, and 74% said it was unjust. Quite a staggering, I thought, 58% to 30% said that they thought that the burning of a police station was justified. And I thought, whoa, then immediately another poll pops up saying that 58% of the population to 30% of the population also thinks that the military units should be sent in to uh, supplement police actions in the riots. So I suppose one takeaway from this is that at the moment, there's a huge amount of information bombarding people. And I think many people's reactions is they're not coming up with coherent ideological responses to it but they're you know they're getting a lot of feelings about different things about seeing these actions on american streets about seeing these very heavy heavily militarized police about seeing chaos and there's probably a lot of quite sort of contradictory emotions uh that that people are, are having so i mean i think opinion polls are valuable for for seeing what people are thinking but we also have to remember that these opinion polls are very much going to reflect the kind of media coverage that is, is coming through. There are issues being really made very, very prominent right now, which may be things that a lot of people don't normally think about. And when people are asked survey questions about things that they don't normally think about, um, frequently the, the response that they give is, uh, is going to be something that is related to the last bit of information they've seen about it. That brings us to the next thing that I want to ask you about, which is about the state response to protests. So a lot has been made of the fact that these predominantly white conservative protesters uh, against the lockdown, they were able to go all the way up to the doors of the state house, even into the doors of the state house in Michigan, 
while carrying semi-automatic weapons. Well, some of them probably weren't real semi-automatic weapons, but that was the impression that they wanted to convey. This actually led to the legislature being shut down uh, for a few days. And the police response was, to put it mildly, incredibly restrained. They didn't respond to shouting and provocation. They didn't try to move people on because they were carrying semi-automatic weapons. There was this sort of utmost respect uh, you could say, for the, the rights of the protesters. Now, a lot has been made of the fact that right from the outset, the police response to uh, protesters over George Floyd has been very, very different from that first night in Minneapolis when tear gas and uh, rubber bullets were used. Uh, is this a fair critique that when it's uh, conservative white protesters, police let them have the run of the mill despite the fact they're carrying automatic weapons, but when it's black protesters, there's this immediate violent state response. Is that is that a fair critique? I think that's an entirely fair critique. Um, and you made the point quite rightly that it was the gear the police were wearing when they knew the protests were coming before they even started. Both instances, both police forces knew that there were protests on their way in the case of Michigan, they knew for sure that they were going to be armed and the police there had face mask and a pistol and that's about it. And those protests were able, protesters were able to push past them into the legislature and were able to chill the democratic process so much that you're quite right, they, they shut it down. That is an incredible amount of power that those white armed protesters were allowed to wield over an entire state legislature. Black protesters in Minneapolis weren't allowed to even wield the power of protesting at the police station before it started to get cracked down on. Um, for so much talk of Second Amendment rights and how, however much the president has emphasised them, there's the First Amendment that, that protects the right to protest. Um, it is quite stark the way the police forces responded to them initially. And David, you said something actually in... Uh, an interview we both did for SBS about the siege mentality that the police had. Yes. Understandable, but it's still not justifiable to my mind to, to preempt. When you have a protest that's protesting militarized policing and you respond to it with militarized policing. Yes. I think that that is an important point that protesters that are targeting the police directly are going to get a predictably different response from protests that are targeting a democratic legislature. Whether, whether or not that response should be different, that, uh, that difference is predictable. And just on this point about militarised policing, so Paul Post, who is a professor of international relations at the University of Chicago, yesterday pointed out that the militarisation of policing which is facilitated by the transfer of weapons and equipment from the armed forces to the police, which is something that's been going on for a long time now. There was legislation in the 90s that made this a permanent uh, feature. But he pointed out it has really accelerated with the Iraq and Afghanistan wars because there is so much surplus military equipment. And one of the visual differences I noticed was with those uh, anti-lockdown protesters, the police who were there still looked like police. They still looked like members of the community who were protecting the community, which included protecting the rights of the protesters. The response across major American cities, not all of them, but a lot of them, 
with the policing, the police don't even look like police. They really do look like uh, members of the military. And in fact, they don't even necessarily look like members of the military. They look more like something out of science fiction, more like something uh, out of Robocop. And that, I think, just that visual effect right from the beginning really increases the possibility of mayhem and chaos. Now, you mentioned, um, you know, Trump's emphasis on Second Amendment rights. There was a lot of that in his response to the first wave of protests. There's also been a lot of that in his response to the second wave of protests. In his address from the Rose Garden yesterday, he promised to defend the Second Amendment rights of Americans, which, is that an invitation to armed counter-protesters on his side? I just want to go to a question from Bruce Hawker here, who says Trump's already trying to delegitimize the upcoming elections by attacking postal voting as a result of COVID-19. So we saw his tweet suggesting that postal voting in California was going to facilitate massive mail fraud. Um, Twitter saw that as such a threat to the democratic process that they actually slapped a, a warning on it and a fact check. So Bruce asks, casting forwards the post-election period, if Trump loses, how likely is widespread militia response? So, I mean, is, is Trump actually trying not, not just to harness, but to really create a militia response here? Thanks very much, Bruce. Thanks, Bruce. Uh, with so much of what, what Trump does, I think this is about, about dividing, speaking to different audiences at the same time and doing, doing that in a way that he can't really be pinned with it. It's, it's such vague language and vague illusions to, that to some fervent supporters and uh, really radical internet groups, they think they understand exactly what he's saying. To everyone else, it's as, as clear as mud. So this is the same process that we've seen play out time and time again, where he's speaking in such vague language, which at the furthest extreme, is something incredibly serious mm. and something incredibly scary. And on the other extreme means almost nothing and makes no sense. It's a dangerous, it's a dangerous set of terms to use for, for some people who have been so radicalized by the internet and who have been waiting for moments of chaos to exploit. Um, I think that's what we saw in Michigan. And David, I'd, I'd love to hear you speak a bit more about Michigan because you spent a good part of your life there and understand it intimately. The militia groups there, can, can you speak a, a bit more about them? Yeah, sure. So, uh, yeah, I spent seven years in Michigan uh, doing my PhD there in the 2000s. And, I mean, Michigan in many ways is famous for its militia movements. The Michigan militia is one of the biggest and best organised militia groups in the country. It became notorious because members of it were connected to the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995. After that, the Michigan militia really had this effort to remake themselves as a kind of a civic organisation that was interested in Second Amendment rights but didn't want to overthrow the government. But there are militia movements out there in Michigan that are a lot more extreme. And I think this is what happens with just about any movement, is that you have the very public, political-oriented version of it, and then you have the extremists who've got more revolutionary aims. And I remember the day uh, when I was sitting in a computer lab in Michigan and all of a sudden 
there were army helicopters overhead. And it turned out that they were heading to Adrian, Michigan, a couple of counties away, to arrest a group called the Hooteri. Uh, the Hooteri were planning to assassinate Barack Obama. This was a group that they had uh, their own very distinctive subculture that was related to white Christian nationalism. They had even invented their own language, which I remember linguistic specialists on CNN saying that this, this language has no resemblance to any other human language except for Pokemon. So it was a group that was not, not only very well organized, but was committed to this absolute kind of, uh, kind of separatism. And Michigan is a, it's, it's an interesting state where there are these very, very strong anti-government uh, pockets, especially throughout the rural parts of the state, which a lot of their complaint is, is essentially against the urban parts of the state. Michigan is an extremely racially divided state. You have the city of Detroit, which at one point in the 1950s had 2 million people and was the richest city in America. When deindustrialization began, when the decline of the American auto industry began, and when there were riots in the late 1960s, a lot of, first of all, the white population and then the middle class black population moved out of the city. And now it's a city of about 700,000 people with a ring of predominantly white suburbs, like 90% white, as opposed to the city that's 85% black. Um, yeah, 90% suburbs of 5 million people. A lot of what we saw in those anti-lockdown protests in Michigan were white people from predominantly rural or exurban parts of the state protesting because they believed that the lockdown measures were just there to protect black people in Detroit and that they shouldn't have to have anything to do uh, with people in other parts of the state and so demanding the, uh, demanding the reopening of everything. So there was a very heavily racialized component to that, which we'll, we'll come back to in a second. But just before we go on, I mean, you talked about how vaguely Trump talks about a lot of things. One of the more specific things, though, that he's talked about is Antifa or Antifa. I'm never quite sure how it's pronounced, where he said that the Department of Homeland Security would designate it as a terrorist organisation. For many Americans, this is probably the first time they've ever heard of Antifa, uh, but it is a frequent topic on Fox News. And you know, so why is it that Trump is, is focused on this? And Ash Jones um, in the Q&A asked a question which I think a lot of people are thinking, which is how big is Antifa anyway, uh, given the scale of these protests? And uh, will Antifa change anything? What can you tell us about Antifa? Um, I spent a bit of time covering Antifa while I was a journalist in 2014. I was following them around a, a series of anti-racist protests in, in Marrickville. Spent a lot of time actually with members of Antifa. I was taking photos for Vice News and working for a, a local Sydney newspaper. They don't trust each other enough to be a legitimate organisation. It is such a disparate string of people with a, a similar sentiment, but that's about all that ties them together. They, they can instigate violence, at least in the, the protests I was at. They can instigate violence, they can make things turn ugly, 
but they're not an organization. And the way I understand it, designating a group in the United States as a terrorist organization is designed to cut off their sources of funding. That's right, yes. Antifa doesn't have clear sources of funding. It doesn't need funding because it is such, it, it's not a group. This is just fits right back into the pattern of Donald Trump looking to externalize blame for problems that are the most internal American problems you could design. These are, these are scars on the soul of a nation. These aren't mm. the violence, the anger. This is not in the first instance started by agitators. This is started by agitated, frustrated African Americans who are sick of the way the system has been geared against them. So while, of course, in any situation where you have this level of national crisis unfolding, you're going to have people trying to exploit it. That's true on the right as much as it is on the left. But this is not where the source of blame lies. And this, this gets back to Bruce's question, actually, about how the United States would process the defeat of Donald Trump. And I think it's incommensurable at the moment. The way this dynamic has has set itself up is for a completely divided United States to, to try and grapple with all these accusations of external influence, mail fraud, all of this. The excuses are flowing in already. It's, it's, it's a dangerous situation with tensions already this high leading up to the election. Right. And certainly there's a very long history of civil unrest being blamed on outside agitators. And even if Antifa itself is relatively small and disorganised, there are a lot of conspiracy theories about it. I mean, I was talking to ABC Adelaide yesterday and a caller called in saying they've got to look into the sources of funding of Antifa. They cut him off before he could say it was George Soros, but that was clearly where he was going with this. And so this brings us to a, uh, a couple of questions. Um, so Anthony Booth has just asked, um, why does the right continue with George Soros as the bogeyman? Uh, that's, I think, related to a broader question that Angela Mao has asked, which is just about the prevalence of conspiracy theories. We've seen it all the way through the pandemic, all the way through the lockdown, you know, theories that it might be a bioweapon of some kind. So... Mike Pompeo and Donald Trump have sort of promoted a mild version of that conspiracy theory, uh, saying that they believe it was created in a lab in Wuhan, although they don't think that it was deliberately... Uh, sorry, they, they believe that it came from a lab in Wuhan. They don't believe it was deliberately created or deliberately released. But nonetheless, there is a lot of belief in this bioweapon theory. So just a, a general question, I suppose, bringing these two things together um, about conspiracy theories. Angela asks, you know, how is this whole rhetoric really influencing American politics at the moment? And do you think in a post-Trump landscape, if that's what's coming, that conspiracy theories will still continue to circulate and, and dominate? Thanks very much, Angela and Anthony. Yeah, um, they are just rife at the moment. One of the Things I've been watching at the moment is the re-emergence, seemingly, of Anonymous, uh, try, trying to place Trump at the centre of the, the Epstein scandal. And Anonymous followers are now clashing with QAnon followers online. QAnon is this pro-Trump, pro anti-deep state conspiracy theory online. 
that says President Trump is there to break up this global pedophile cabal run by elites. So that, there is just chaos at the moment on the internet. And it's, it's something that the president's supporters, we've seen incredible numbers of, of Republicans running for Congress in 2020 who are affiliated or at least supporters of QAnon. Mm. There are just conspiracy theories that are ripe at the moment in the United States. And as was the case with the protests, as was the case uh, even with the Bertha conspiracy movement, President Trump never starts these things, but he leans right into them in such a way that he can't be seen as wholly responsible. He's saying, hmm, there's some information out there that might be interesting. I heard some things about Joe Scarborough. And then you just have this army of online independent researchers, is how they like to refer to themselves, who search for truth and search for conspiracies and look to draw red strings across the board to tie all these events together. And when you have the level of political activation and really crisis in the United States with 40 million people out of a job and, and counting, and it needs to be said that the destruction we're seeing on the streets at the moment, stores are being destroyed that were already decimated by the pandemic. Absolutely, this yeah. is entrenching a genuinely massive economic crisis in the United States. And this all plays into people looking for someone to point the finger at. Mm. To return to questions around uh, race and racism. So there has been a lot of debate around, we've got African-Americans protesting against police brutality, but these have also been very multiracial rallies. There have been a lot of white protesters. A lot of the worst excesses of the protesters have actually been blamed on what people are referring to as white uh, riot tourists, um, you know, people who are just there to, to, to break windows and, uh, and for a bit of excitement. And um, Ariel Castro Martinez asks a question which I think is relevant, perhaps not just to these protests, but to the whole movement that is going on at the moment. And we even see this in controversies uh, around the use of social media. You know, a lot of white allies are weighing in to these debates. And there's a, you know, there's a lot of debate about, okay, it's great that you're showing your allyship, um, but, you know, shouldn't we be making more room for black voices, for people of colour at the moment? Um, so Ariel asks, first of all, how does, does race affect how protests are viewed? And second, what power do minority protesters have to resist either this co-option or external definition? Yeah, um, I would say absolutely yes. Race clearly factors into the way protesters are viewed. And again, you can just go straight back to, to the White House for this. Thugs versus very good people. The thugs, of course, were black Americans protesting. The very good people were... Armed, armed white Americans forcing their way into the Michigan legislature. This is, again, it gets into that preconceived notion that black Americans aren't going to be peaceful protesters, and that's not the case. We're seeing every day as this plays out during the day that there are overwhelmingly peaceful protests taking place. There are, of course, skirmishes, but these, these start as peaceful protesters, and it's as, as day gives way to night that things start to take a darker turn. And even in the way newspapers are covering this, 
language and imagery has such an important role to play in how these protests and riots, which are at, at once separate issues, but also entwined, are covered. Mm. You can't portray peaceful protesters as the same as the rioters and portray them as all black because it's clearly a multiracial presence on the streets. Mm. It's, it's, it's much bigger than race, but it's still clearly about racial injustice and injustice in the United States. Okay, uh, thanks very much. And that brings us to a question from Freya Zemeck. Great to see you again, Freya. Um, so she asks, do you think that this moment of activism will translate into higher levels of turnout among African-Americans for Joe Biden, who uh, last week or the week before last was recovering from his comments to Charlemagne the God, uh, saying if you have to decide between him and Trump, you ain't black. Um, a lot of African-Americans, well, especially a lot of younger African-Americans were not that enthusiastic about Biden. We saw that in the primaries, he was getting a lot of support from older African-Americans, especially in the South, especially after the endorsement of uh, Jim Clyburn. Um, but a lot of younger African-Americans were really lukewarm towards him. Going right back to what you said about the start about there's a political context to all of this. Um, do you think that that kind of activism will help Biden in November? Or do you think that a lot of these protesters see this as something that really isn't about the election. It's about something quite different. And that putting Biden in, who came out yesterday and said police should be trying to shoot protesters in the legs, you know, that, that's really not what this is actually about. Thanks, Rainer. Yeah, and there are a couple of important threads here. The first uh, that I just want to briefly mention is the pandemic. Um, every day that passes, roughly 20,000 more Americans uh, testing positive to COVID-19. We don't know how bad it could get by November. And you have the dual push against mail-in voting and potentially just the explosion of COVID-19 cases that could make voting an incredibly dangerous task. So there's that, which invariably, invariably will factor into turnout. The second thing is what we are seeing is, you're right, it's not political because it's a complete frustration with the whole system. That's not the kind of environment that fosters voter participation. There is a way to turn this into voter participation by convincing incredibly angry people that the way to fix this is, is with your democratic powers. But the people on the streets now have been told that for decades and they're not seeing change. The Black Lives Matter movement started during the Obama administration. This is so much deeper than the election of Trump, so much broader than the next election. And as to whether it affects voter turnout, I think it's really unclear because this is absolute pandemonium at the moment. Yeah. One thing I will say and, and that I was arguing in, in the report is that the way COVID-19 has fallen and particularly on young people more generally, has exposed to them how short the policy pipeline in the United States is. You know, at the moment, they are disproportionately losing their jobs. They were already in low-income jobs. And they're being cut a single check from, from the government that is supposed to get them through their troubles. This has the potential to politically activate 
what is otherwise famously a politically lethargic generation of, of young Americans. And those generations are much more diverse than every other generation that has come before them. Um, but I'll say two things about that generation. Yes, they're very diverse, but there's also a large number of young white Americans who are grappling with a perceived sense of loss of political control. Um, so there was polling out of the University of Chicago's Gen Forward survey, which is a, uh, runs every two months, surveys a very large sample of young Americans about their views on politics and every matter of things. 50, between 48 and 51% of young white Americans said discrimination against white people has become, quote, as big a problem as discrimination against other races. That is an incredibly stark finding. And it, it means that if there is political activation, there's no guarantee that it's going to fall behind progressive causes and progressive politicians. Mm. There's a, a very real sense that something is being lost and that it needs to be grabbed onto with both hands. That's what we saw at the Unite the Right, right protests in, in 2017. And what I fear, especially with the language that's coming from the White House, is that there could also be a reactionary mobilization of an anti-protest yeah. <laughs> anti movement. And that's, that's quite concerning, especially with the language of the Second Amendment being, being thrown around. I can definitely see that. And sticking with this point of activism and going back to one of the very first points that you made, which is about how the pandemic initially deprived progressive activists of one of their, um, of one of their major tools. Um, so Isabel Wolfensberger, good to see you again, Isabel, asks, um, you know, we've already witnessed the power of social media to shape the course of an American presidential election through foreign influence and bots, but also through grassroots activism and official candidate platforms. So we are, despite the fact there's now a lot of in-person activism going on, we're also witnessing very widespread online activism at the moment. Um, so yeah, given the role that we know social media played in the last election, do you see it playing a similar role in, in this election or are there really important things that have changed? There has been a lot of change and I'm not qualified to speak about foreign interference in, in elections, but the one thing I will say going back to the original report that I, I plan to write, how progressive groups are responding to this, they have been aggressively mobilising, really shoring up their digital lists really figuring out and innovating new ways to, to protest, new ways to, to lobby governments to affect change. So they are, despite having that main tool of civil resistance taken away marches, they really strengthened in, in other avenues, really strengthened their digital mailing lists, and especially as well with internet use around the world in first world countries just exploding through the roof with uh, COVID-19, so many people have so much time to be online. Digital literacy is improving across the board as well. So these progressive groups, and it has to be said, conservative groups as well, conspiracy theorists, everyone has stronger tools to be able to reach and, and activate and mobilize people at the moment. It doesn't necessarily play out well for progressive groups in, in the, the, the balanced who wins this struggle, but, everyone is more well equipped to 
practice activism without being on the streets. Right. Um, and I, I would say that what we saw originally here was genuinely grassroots in the truest sense of the term. Black Lives Matter, its organisational website, was still most prominently displaying how best to social distance during the pandemic, during the first nights of these protests. This is not an organisational movement. This is genuinely grassroots, at least in the way it started in, in the United States. Yeah. Okay. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Trump now. I mean, we've already talked about him, but his responses to all of this is so important to the dynamic. And Elizabeth German uh, pre-submitted a question, why do so many Americans still believe in Trump? And in addition to this, and I think this is very strongly related, Linda Tolberg has just asked us, how do you think Trump's photo op will play with his evangelical base? Is there any sign of fracturing on this? And she said, Dr. Dave, that's in your bailiwick, I believe. It is. So um, I'm going to take the first uh, crack at this. So yesterday, I'm, I'm sure you all saw it, Trump emerged from the White House, went over to St. John's Church, which is just across the street on Lafayette Square, which had been vandalised the night before, and held up a Bible in front of the camera. There was no recitation of Bible verses. There, he didn't even really say anything at that point. It was all just the visual of him holding the Bible in front of this shuttered church. Now, that was quite obviously a very specific message for his evangelical base. And that is the message that he has had for them from day one, which is, I'm fighting for you because you're under attack. I'm going to defend you. There's a bit of a misconception about Trump's relationship with evangelicals. And people often ask, look, you know, this, this guy does not lead an exemplary Christian lifestyle. If you look at his multiple divorces, his association with the porn industry, his language, his obvious unfamiliarity with the Bible, you know, why do Christians like him? And the answer to that is that for a lot of white conservative evangelical Christians, they know that he is not an exemplary Christian. A lot of them would probably have their doubts about whether he's any kind of Christian at all. What he is and what he has always promised to be is someone who is on their side. There was a very important rally that Trump held at Liberty University during his election campaign in 2016, where the bit that got all the media coverage was when he referred to the second Corinthians book of the Bible as two Corinthians. And everyone laughed because that shows he's really not familiar with, uh, with certainly evangelical ways of describing the Bible. But they missed the really important part of the rally where he said, I'm going to fight for you because I'm not politically incorrect. Sorry, because I'm not politically correct. Okay, so the message that he was sending was that his own struggles are part of this broader cultural struggle. He's basically saying, I've got the same enemies as you, so I'm going to fight for you. So evangelical Christians are quite prepared to forgive his personal lack of familiarity with the Bible, his personal life. He has delivered arguably more political victories to the Christian right than any other president, including ones who were practicing evangelicals. When you look at the number of judges he's appointed, when you look at the way that he's escalated things with Iran, moving the US embassy to, uh, in, in Israel to Jerusalem, 
all of these are things that his evangelical base wanted. He, he's even given thing, them things that they had given up on, like rolling back Obama's uh, um, uh, allowing trans people into the military. So, I mean, he's really delivered for them. But there's also a very definite identity politics there, saying to Christians, you are under attack, I am defending you. And he's really trying to use this issue to say that all of this anarchy, all of this chaos, all of these black people rioting, this is part of the big culture war that's, that's going on. And Christianity will be under attack and I'm going to defend you from it. So I think, yes, for, for the specific audience that was intended for, it's going to play well. There has been a little bit of uh, fracturing around the edges of the Christian coalition behind Trump. But what we're seeing is it's the most sort of intellectual, cerebral uh, components of it that have turned against Trump. So it's people who managed to convince themselves last time around that Trump was worth voting for because he would defend them. You're now beginning to see them. You're, so you're seeing prominent Christian publications um, like uh, Christianity Today, you're seeing people from uh, denominations like the Southern Baptist Convention turn against him. A lot of people were furious about how that church photo op actually panned out, where in order to clear the square for Trump to walk across it, they had to tear gas and use rubber bullets on people who were standing in the patio area of the church, including clergy. So, you know, a lot of people think that it, it, it was actually a violation of religious liberty, if anything. But, I mean, this is an Episcopalian church and conservative evangelicals in Trump's base have no time for Episcopalians uh, anyway. But what they are really into is that kind of symbolism that, uh, that Trump was demonstrating. As to the, so as to that broader question from Elizabeth, uh, why do people still believe in Trump? A substantial part of Trump's coalition are conservative white evangelical Christians who really do see him as a figure that was brought to them by God, as someone who is, uh, who is doing God's work. And they would point to there's a long history in the Bible of God using these unholy people like King Cyrus the Great um, in order to accomplish his will. That's, that's how a lot of people see him. But this isn't Trump's whole coalition. Elliot, would you like to to tell us what you think about, you know, because we do see nothing seems to move Trump's approval rating that much in the end. It's always in the 40s, no matter where it is. So that 40%, at least, of people who are always sticking with Trump, what do you see motivating them? Yeah, I, I would just extend your analysis. Um, it, it really is the sense that uh, Trump is able to instill in people that I am fighting for you. I understand your problems. No one else does. I get it. No one understands this better than I do. I will fight for you. Um, whether or not he backs that up, it, it hasn't seemed to matter because that is the message that he understands. Um, so it's been really quite difficult for his base to shake. And this, this again gets back to the young white Americans that I was talking about. It's across the board, a sense that white America is losing control. You know, the United States will be majority minority by, I think, between 2030 and 2040. For many Americans, that seems to be a, a crisis. Um, and certainly in the way that President Trump has riled up racial tensions, 
he is positioning himself as the person who's going to fight for traditional America. And that's why the language echoing Nixon even this morning has been quite concerning because that's where this whole cycle of militarized policing started. That's the crux of what we're seeing now. And President Trump has shown no inclination to, to break the cycle. Um, yes, if, yeah. if you haven't been following President Trump's uh, Twitter feed, he's been retweeting these sort of Nixon slogans, law and order, silent majority. Um, someone pointed out on Twitter as if they're Harry Potter spells. Uh, but yeah, he's uh, looking very Nixonian at the moment. And related to that, I think, um, so Nixon was never a fan of the media. He saw the media as permanently biased against him and against his people, against his constituency. And there was a lot of, uh, a lot of resentment that he tapped into there. So um, Thomas D. Baldraith, sorry if I've uh, mispronounced that, Thomas, but thanks for your question, asks that with a lot of documentation of police attacking journalists, and I've seen more than uh, 100 instances of this collected on Twitter, as well as peaceful protesters, do you think that that's a deliberate strategy adopted by the authorities? Uh, there have been deliberate attacks on media. You see the footage of, of the, the guns, the rubber bullet guns clearly pointed at cameras. Mm. Um, but I, I think that's the sweep of convincing police that they're in a war zone. Um, it's, it's that sort of mentality. That, that really plays into it. Um, one of the things we are seeing is that journalists being attacked is getting journalists on side with the problem of police brutality. I'm not saying in any way that this is a good phenomenon, but mm. time after time, when you have journalists involved in the United States uh, woes, you saw this with Jamal Khashoggi uh, and the war in Yemen, a journalist died and it was taken very seriously by the fourth estate really cranked into gear. And that's what we're seeing here. It's not, it's not fruitful for police if they're interested in, in keeping the status quo of the way they've been policing to attack journalists. Yeah. And it's also spreading the criticism around the world with the seven news crew attacked yesterday in the clearing of Lafayette Square. It's, it's terrible PR, if that's, if that's what it is. I wouldn't say... I couldn't comment on whether it's a, a directive for the police to go after media. Yeah. Um, I would speculate that it's just police swept up in the warlike situation that, that's playing out on the streets. Right, absolutely. Okay, we've only got a few minutes left, so I just want to address a couple of uh, final questions. I'm going to merge a couple of questions together here. So um, Jamie Langabeer has asked us about the sensationalism of negative media and negative social media, asking kind of, does that drown out the possibility of positive moments to take from this, like amplifying positive, good activism that is coming out? And I want to feed this into an, uh, one of the pre-submitted questions from this morning. Um, just bringing it up, sorry. Um, which was about Australia. And so this is from Genevieve Flynn. And we do need to mention here that police brutality against 
black people is not a problem that is unique to the United States. In 1987, in Australia, we had the Royal Commission into black deaths in custody. It had many recommendations, none of which were ever implemented. Uh, Sally Rudd pointed out on Twitter earlier this week that no police officer has ever been held criminally responsible for the death of an Indigenous person in police custody. And we've seen just in the last 24 hours, um, social media captured footage of a New South Wales police officer assaulting an Indigenous, uh, an Indigenous teen and then a response from the police minister that he was equally upset about the fact that this uh, teenager made a threat to the police officer. We have seen deaths of Indigenous people in custody this year that have led to uh, that have led to protests, although they haven't got anything like the publicity that they get in the US. So um, Genevieve asks, how can Australia harness the momentum that is developing in America to instigate thoughtful and lasting change in Australia? This is absolutely a moment for internal reflection. Um, it's so easy to point the finger at the United States and say, look how bad that is. Um, and just ignore everything that's, that's happened in Australia and that's happening in Australia. Um, as social movements go, the United States has a remarkable ability to be able to export its, its protest movements. And we're seeing that certainly in Australia, but there is genuinely a lot to be angry about in Australia. And that, that footage yesterday was, was evidence that there are still problems that, you know, our house needs to be in order as well. Um, so the way to respond to it is to take on board, I think, the messages of the progress that we're seeing coming out of the United States and to absolutely keep the focus on institutional problems that are, that are ripe within our system as well. Um, the, the deaths of Aboriginals in custody haven't been able to get the same sort of media attention, but now they are. And that's, that's something that is an indictment on Australia that it hasn't been able to to give this issue enough light, but now the world is watching the United States, but it's also starting to look internally. And I think it's absolutely a moment to, to capitalise on and, and push for change in Australia. Okay, thanks very much. Uh, we have just about reached the end of our time now. So Elliot, I'd like to thank you very much for all of your insight uh, today, and I would encourage everyone who is watching to, uh, to have a look at his report. Thanks to everybody who asked uh, questions. Sorry I couldn't get to all of them in the end, but we really, really appreciate uh, your input. And thanks to everybody who was watching. Finally, uh, thanks to Janine Pinto and Mara Gonzalez from the United States Studies Centre who organised this.